On today's episode, we're going to talk about the murder of Quinn Gwynn, also the tragic story of Alex Bedito. This is Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks, Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the boondocks Lord have mercy can't help me Bad in the boondocks Hey and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks As always I'm one of your hosts Stan And I'm Drew, how's it going? Alright y'all, two things Well three things, I think you have one Yes, we want to thank Cindy Ortiz for becoming one of our special patrons. Thank you so much for Woo! doing that. Yay. All right. Secondly, we need five-star reviews. I thought that I made it clear we want a five-star last time, but we do not want the one-stars like we have been getting. <laughs> well, I think it was an accident on one of them because the I said... The other was not an accident. Yeah, the other one wasn't, but that that girl's just a... Never mind. Just... Anyway... If you have, please go and rate us five stars, do a review, take a screenshot of it, email it to badintheboondocks at gmail.com to be entered in for this month's drawing, which is going to be next week. Yeah, we haven't been getting as many entries lately. No, so we haven't please, gotten any entries. Yeah, so please make sure that you do that and you will get to pick out of our um, special merchandise. Secondly, the next drawing that we're going to do. The first 50 people that become a Bad in the Boondocks patron or a Himalaya Premium Bad in the Boondocks member will be entered into a drawing to receive a $100 Amazon gift card. Yeah. So, if you've already become a premium member or are already a patron, your name is already entered. Yes. So... Go over to Patreon.com, look up Bad in the Boondocks, become a member, or if you use Himalaya, become a premium member to be entered in for a $100 Amazon gift card. Well, well, I definitely would for that. Yeah, I mean, I always enter in competition, I mean, like, contests, but I never win. But it could be your chance to win, so. (laughs) All right, and now we are going to get straight into our episode since we don't want to spend too long talking <laughs> because stars are removed for that. <laughs> okay, well, it's not that big big of a deal, but it's fine. I, I think it's your turn to go first. Yes, it is, and I'm going to be ta- telling the story of Stephen Unwin, who was age 40, William McFall, age 51, and those are the murders of Quinn Gwynn, age 28. And, and she, is she from a different country? She is, but she's an actually pretty woman, but it's just, it's tragic, you know? Beauty's on the inside anyway. Okay. I mean, I mean it, can, it can be on the outside as well, but <laughs> let's get on into it. On August 14th, Quinn had been working at the nail salon and then been viewing properties. 
an arrangement was made for her to visit Stephen Unwin's home that evening. Stephen had invited her on the pretext of them going to make a property visit. William knew of her impending arrival, but they had no such intention. Their intention from the outset was to subject Gwen to an attack for a combination of sexual and financial motives. Shortly after 6 p.m., while both men were inside the house, William sent a text to Stephen saying, Stephen saying, quote, we raping the chink fuck, end wow. quote. Wow, yeah. Yes. Stephen replied immediately, telling him to remove shit like that from his phone. CCTV footage shows Gwen arriving at the rear of Stephen's home at around 7.30 that evening. She had, been, she had driven there in her Audi car and parked it around the corner. Just before letting her in by the back gate, Stephen gestured to William to keep out of sight. That was the last time she was seen alive by anyone but these two men. Four hours later, she was carried out of the house over the shoulder of Stephen Unwin, wrapped in a sheet. She was subjected to a sustained and terrifying ordeal. She was dragged through the house and subjected to an attack to extract information from her, which culminated in her being suffocated by having a pillow or a plastic bag placed over her head. I Both, think that that would be horrible. I know it would. I mean, I don't even it's know what... definitely not quick. Yeah, I don't even know what kind of information they were trying to get from her. I was going to ask you that. There was nowhere. I was also going to ask, why did they think that she had money? Because didn't, I, wasn't she working in a nail salon? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, I wouldn't think that person... I think it was mostly for sexual stuff. I think it was as well. But, I, you know, you never really know because I think that this part was sort of based on Stephen's word on it. Uh, because, every okay, everything else was caught on many video cameras all around places, basically, and showed exactly what they did. Uh, but they, it didn't catch what they did inside the house. But everything else it caught. Okay. Both men participated. In that time, Stephen raped Gwen, in the course of which he ejaculated. He used a toy lightsaber, which he placed between Gwen's legs. He used it to rape her? Yes. Okay. A gun owned by William McFall was used against Gwen at some stage, either to strike her or for sexual purposes, but DNA evidence was consistent with both. So he raped her with the gun as well. Dang. She was injected with a syringe filled with whiskey. Good Lord, that would hurt. Yeah. I would think it would kill you. I mean, I would too, but it's amazing how people live through all kind of stuff, you know? Her bank cards were taken, and her PIN numbers were extracted from her. At around 9.40 p.m., Stephen Umwin left and drove to the co-op where he was, where he used those bank cards to withdraw 500 pounds from her account. Because this is in England. So she must have had a little bit of money, though. 
I can tell you we wouldn't have that. Well, right now nah. we would because we got paid yesterday, but Yeah, I mean, right now. But I'm saying, like, any other time you find us, we'd be... No, you're not getting... You might get a pound. Shit, yesterday I was so happy because I found $10 up under my truck seat, and I was like, hell Heck yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably mine. I think it was. I it, think it was, It had been in there for a little bit. Yeah, it was mine. <laughs> but anyways, um... You still got it? No, I used that. You owe me 10 then. No, I don't, because I don't know really who it was, whose it was. William remained at the house. He made no attempt to escape or to attract the attention of anybody else. Stephen then returned. About half an hour later, William sent Stephen a text message asking him to come into the house from the garage. A few seconds later, he did. By this time, at the latest, Gwen had been incapacitated. The two men sought to tidy and clean up the house. Sometime at around 10.30 p.m., while Gwen was lying in, in the house, her life dwindling away, the two men casually cooked and ate curry. Wow. Yeah. At around 11 p.m., the two men then took steps to dispose of Gwen. First, Stephen went out into the back lane and maneuvered Gwen's Audi closer to the house, bringing a petrol can from the van. Then at 11.35 p.m., Stephen can be seen carrying Gwen's body, covered in a dust sheet, out towards the back lane with William assisting. The two men put Gwen's body in the back seat of her Audi car and drove from St. Oswald's Terrace to the track by the allotments. Upon arriving at the allotments, which allotments are, you know, basically owned by people to put gardens in, you know? Yeah. Okay, I was just making it's sure. It's like a bunch in England or whatever. It's like a bunch of, it's a big old piece of land and it's separated into separate sections. Exactly. And each of them are gardens. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, upon arriving there, they set the car on fire with Gwen on the back seat and left. Half an hour or so later, the fire brigade arrived, and upon extinguishing the fire, found the deeply charred remains of Gwen on the back seat. She had been so badly burnt that she had to be identified by her dental records. According to the forensic evidence, it is likely that at the point at which the car was set on fire, Gwen was still alive. In the meantime, Stephen... When she was set on fire, she was still alive? Yes. Gosh, she had a horrible ordeal. Yeah. In the meantime, Stephen and William had calmly walked back from the site of the fire to St. Oswald's Terrace. Less than five minutes later, they then got into Stephen Owen's car and drove to a Nissa store at Fence Houses. So a Nissa store is just a grocery store, basically, and I presume that Fence Houses is a location in England. In the, Not sure, but probably. Yeah. In the course of that journey, William took and sent to his girlfriend a selfie of the two of them in front of the car looking relaxed and with William John McFall smiling. At the store... Stephen Owen made further cash withdrawals from Gwen's bank cards. They then drove back to St. Oswald's Terrace, tidying up, and then went to bed. 
The next day, Stephen Unwin and William John McFall went about their business as if nothing ever happened. CCTV footage from various locations in the area shows both of them visiting shops and a pub looking relaxed. However, as a result of using those bank cards, the police identified Stephen Unwin as a suspect, and that evening he was arrested on suspicion of murder. William John McFall's arrest followed shortly after. In court, Stephen was found guilty of first-degree murder and rape and sentenced to life imprisonment. Williams was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. And that's my story. That's she it. She went through some bad stuff. I know she did. All the way up until death. Yep. And it's like that so was, many of the things could have killed her. Exactly. Like even the syringe going yeah. going inside of her. Yeah. Or somewhere. the lightsaber even. Exactly. Do you know how well first off, why was he why, why did he have a lightsaber I in the house to begin I don't with? Know, but it was her house. Oh, it was? But maybe oh, he wait. maybe they brought that. <laughs> Never mind. I forgot. Yeah, it was. All right. Wow. Well, it's not going to get any better whenever I do mine. Wait, it wasn't her house, though. Oh, I thought they took them to her house. Mm. I thought they went in her house. I know. Oh. Because you remember, they were going to do a visit a property, so then... Oh, yeah, it was just a baby. So then, well, then why she Because she came to his house. Oh. Supposedly, to, I guess, I think to go look at a property. Or they didn't meet at the property, maybe? No. Oh. So she came to his house, but I don't know why a lightsaber was there. I have no idea. Just have been I mean, major we know Star Wars. That would have lightsabers. <laughs> Must have been major Star Wars fans, man. Okay, before I get into mine, we're going to take a quick break and listen to a promo from one of the podcasts that I subscribe and listen to. It is the Fresh Hell podcast, and um, I think y'all will like it. I think you should check it out because, first of all, the girls that do it, gals that do it, not girls, are super cool. One of them loves old buildings. She has a soothing voice, and the other one's accent is just kick-ass. Yep. So, that's fresh hell. Go and listen to them. Hi, we're the hosts of the Fresh Hell podcast. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna in Vienna, Austria. Join us every Wednesday for a new terrible story. I focus mostly on cases in the United States, and not just true crime, like the terrifying axe murders on Smutty Nose Island, but also shocking stories like the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. And I love to tell you about more obscure European cases. And let me tell you, Germany has produced more cannibals than one would think. So if you're a fan of true crime, but you also enjoy terrible stories of all sorts, give us a listen. We'll tell you everything you need to know, and then some. Come find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Auf Wiedersehen. Hope to see you soon. And we're back. Mm-hmm. All right. 
Now this this is a story that is going to leave you feeling with a mix of emotions. And if you're like me, you'll feel a profound sadness for the victim and a rage at not only the perpetrators, but also the system who allowed this tragedy to occur. This is the heartbreaking story of a 15-year-old boy that fell through the cracks. A young boy who lived a life of pain and neglect, only to have his life ended so quickly because of that neglect. This is the story of Alex Radita. Nice little intro. In May of 2013, emergency services received a call from Alex Radita's father. He said that he had found his 15-year-old son lying in bed and unresponsive. The operator tried to get the father to perform CPR, but the father said he had tried that already and nothing happened. Minutes after making the call, emergency services arrived. What they found upon their arrival would haunt them the rest of their lives. In fact, it was a scene so heartbreaking that the emergency crew that responded had to receive counseling afterwards. Wow. Alex was lying in an upstairs bedroom with a yellow shirt and blue, with blue sleeves on. That was the only thing that was normal about the scene, however. The 15-year-old had brown hair, but there were bald spots, and the rest was so thin. His face was almost skeletonized. His eyes were sunken in, and his jawbone was sharp. He had no usable teeth. Yeah, I meant we looked at the picture, and it is just awful how basically every part of his body is. It's just unreal. Alex's hip bone was protruding, and his waist was around four inches. His body was covered in bed sores, and the 15-year-old was wearing a diaper. Alex Radita weighed only 37 pounds at 15 years old. Think on that for just a moment. A normal, healthy 15-year-old boy weighs an average of 120 pounds, and a healthy 4- to 5-year-old boy usually weighs in 35 pounds. It was a sight that left veteran police officers stuttering and in tears. Wait, you said that his waist was four inches? Yes, around four inches. Oh, my God. Do you know how small it is? Try to do that on your fingers, and it's nothing. It was later determined that Alex Radita died because of bacterial sepsis brought on by starvation and neglect. Alex Radita's first medical crisis began when he was on the verge of turning three. His parents brought him, thirsty, feverish, vomiting, and suffering from abdominal pain, to a hospital in British Columbia in December of 2000. Lab tests confirmed that young Alex had type 1 diabetes. A doctor spoke to Alex's mother to explain her son's diagnosis and how they would need to treat him at home. Type 1 diabetes is a lifelong condition in which a person's pancreas produces little to no insulin. People with type 1 diabetes need regular blood tests 
and insulin injections to moderate blood sugar levels. So is type 1 diabetes worse than I think so. All of them? I think it's worse than it's only type 1 and type 2 and I think type 1 is the worst. Type 1 is okay. However, his mother did not believe the doctor's diagnosis and she was determined to prove them wrong. Alex's mother and father were arrested in early 2014 and they were found guilty of first degree murder in the death of their son. They are both sentenced to life in prison. The Reditas were well aware of how ill Alex was, and they still refused to treat his medical condition with proper insulin protocol and medical care. They knew he was dying. For years, Alex was reportedly homeschooled and had little contact with the outside world. His parents... Intentional isolation of Alex from anyone who could intervene had a profound effect on the teen, who had weakened to the point that he had trouble moving. His muscles had wasted away. His body was covered in painful bed sores. One of those were so advanced that his jawbone was visible. The pain at times had to be unbearable. He was unable to use the toilet and the only evidence of food intake was baby food jars. Wow. Nearly four years after Alex's death, actually about six years now, questions remain about why the family did not take professional medical treatment in the final years of his life. One of his siblings testified in court that the family did not believe in doctors because of their religion, But, unlike some denominations known for their belief solely in spiritual healing, there does not appear to be any doctrine that bears that out for the Romanian Apostolic Church, to which the Reditas belong to. Letters written by the mother and the father and posted to an online message board for the Romanian community in 2004 indicate that there was nothing in his religious beliefs that barred him from seeing doctors, but that they had developed a deep mistrust for them. After claiming that Alex had been forcibly handled at a hospital, and they said that their son's diabetes had been misdiagnosed, and they accused the doctors of teaming up against them to tear apart the family. Yeah, well, type 1 diabetes is destroys the insulin and type 2 diabetes as it gets worse the pancreas just makes less and less insulin so type 1 is way worse because yeah. you don't have any it's insulin. hard way harder to control and it's a, and you know it's lifelong like exactly you and you definitely have to take your shots for it or else yeah yeah i mean you could die to all outward appearances court documents stated the Raditas seemed to be running a normal busy household filled with two adults and their eight children so they Eight. had seven other children besides Alex. Oh, my Alex. God. But concerns about Alex's treatment, or rather his lack of treatment, had warranted social service intervention before. In 2003, when he was five and the Raditas were living in British Columbia, Alex was again admitted to the hospital, suffering from hypoglycemia. Alex's mother told doctors they had not taken him for medical care for two years. 
A doctor noted that Alex was within one day of death at this time. Oh my God. After that hospital visit, Alex was placed in foster care, where he remained throughout 2004. Alex thrived in the foster home. His foster mother was also a type 1 diabetic, and she was able and willing to give him the care that he so desperately needed. So he lived with the foster mother for a year. In a victim impact statement she prepared, but ultimately could not read at the Redditas trial, Alex's social worker, Patricia McDonald, recalled visiting him at his foster mother's home. Her statement read, quote, We were so proud of you and how well you understood your diabetes. Your foster parents encouraged independence and had a range of food you could choose from. Alex, you were so engaging when you attended appointments at the Children's Diabetes Center. All the staff were delighted to see you. However, these positive memories are shrouded by the torment that you must have experienced through all those years that followed. But now see, in 2004, at the very end in December, a judge in British Columbia ruled that Alex could return to his parents. Wow. He stated that the Reditas had now accepted the diagnosis of diabetes and they would now treat it properly given sufficient education and monitoring. Now, it's you need to know that whenever he first went to the hospital and was diagnosed with diabetes, they did extensive, they went above and beyond teaching the parents how to take care of him. Yeah. They even sent a nurse out for the first month to check and make sure that they knew how to give the shots and how to take the blood. Yeah. So he had they had already been given all exactly. that. Exactly. That just just piece of shit. That's <coughs> what he is. The family had not previously experienced a major hospitalization with Alex and now they have. They will therefore know how to look for gradual changes as well as rapid ones. The judge also added that Alex would be under the watchful eye of school teachers and a family doctor now, who would be able to notify authorities if his condition changed. Even though Alex's foster mother, doctors, and his social worker fought the decision Alex returned to live with his parents in January of 2005. For about two years, the family was commended for keeping Alex's diabetes under control. Records showed he slowly gained weight and progressed three grades in school. So it goes to show you that if he's treated, I mean, he thrives. Exactly. However, at his last known clinic visit on January 16th of 2008, a doctor noted Alex's mother was resisting a recommended increase in her son's insulin dosage. Out of a mistaken fear, it was causing cold sores. The doctor never saw Alex again. It was around then, sometime in 2008 or 2009, that the Reditas moved from British Columbia to Alberta. A social worker who first met the family in 2000 testified that she tried unsuccessfully to follow up with the Reditas for about a month after they missed a January 2009 doctor's appointment. 
Another social worker testified that she found Alex had been withdrawn from his last elementary school. Her team leader directed her to close the file on Alex due to insufficient information, which she did. So why do you think they um, started back with, like, mistreating him like they did after I think the only reason that they did treat him good was because they had to because they were checking up on him. Yeah. They were checking on him for those two years. Exactly. Okay, yeah. But then, see, they moved, took him out of school. Yeah. There were no records of Alex receiving medical exams or services while in Alberta. Though prescription records showed thousands of dollars of diabetes-related drugs and equipment between 2009 and 2012. A picture of Alex at his 15th birthday party in January of 2013, just a few months before his death, showed him with sunken eyes and a mysterious blotch on his forehead, but wearing festive birthday glasses and holding some wrap gifts. And it is that's a you can see the video online. It is sad, but just to see, I mean, they took this video like they are great parents. Exactly. But he can barely open up the wrapper on the present. Yep. I mean, it's pitiful. He has nothing to support any kind of weight that he picks up, so, I mean, he couldn't hardly pick up nothing. His parents actually presented those photos from the birthday party in court as evidence that they loved their child. Oh, my God, that is bullshit. During the trial, one of Alex's seven siblings testified that their mother was particularly fond of Alex. They said that he was a very vibrant person. He was very artistic, smart. He was one of the favorites, the girl said. So then... I would why hate to be the so least then, favorite. So then why weren't they like that? <laughs> she told prosecutor Susan Pepper during a cross-examination that her parents didn't seek medical care for Alex for religious reasons. This has to make you love religion. So, the prosecutor asked, your parents didn't believe in doctors because of their religion, is that right? And the girl said yes. I mean, like, even... Even Amish go see some kind of doctor. Yeah, they even just... if they are like a witch doctor. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they but go see some. But their something. religion had nothing to do. It was nothing about not going to medical care. There's no religion. That so there's states... no there's no basis for them to say this because the religion does not state you can't see doctors. Exactly. Okay. Nicolae Brancu, a Romanian church pastor, testified that Alex's father attended church frequently, sometimes accompanied by family members, but that he could not remember ever meeting Alex. A few months before Alex died, Brancu said Alex's father mentioned to him that his son had cancer. Weeks later, he said his son was fine. And so they know everything they're doing is wrong because they're not taking them places. And they're lying, saying that he has cancer. Exactly. On the night of Alex's death, Franco and about half a dozen people from the church visited the Redita family's home. Brancus went straight to the bedroom where Alex lay. 
he knew immediately Alex was dead. Mrs. Radita was lying beside Alex on the bed and touching him. He told Mr. Radita immediately to call an ambulance, which Mr. Radita did, but only after speaking to his family first. EMS workers would arrive to find a group chanting in the living room, and Alex was pronounced dead shortly after 10 p.m. Pepper, the prosecutor, said Canada's social safety net had failed Alex. She said that she thought that there are probably children in the same situation as Alex, and it would be naive to think that there are not other children who are being isolated by their parents so that the parents can abuse and neglect them. I mean, of course there are. I don't really think, I mean, I don't feel so much that the social services failed it as much as that judge did. I mean, ultimately, a person's life, whereas any kind of, with dealing with anything, is um up to the judge's hands. Anybody's life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, even, like, not even if you're on trial for a murder, oh, and then you go to prison, oh, it's up to him as death or live not even like that i'm just saying like any kind of dealing with the child he needed to be more i don't know aware something get hit in the damn head with the brick i don't know but that's all i got to say (laughs) (laughs) according to cbc news mcdonald said she hoped to work with the canadian lawmakers to create an alex alert system that was similar to amber alerts for abducted children so that others might not suffer the way he had. Alex was a very brave, a very smart little man, and he would have wanted for his life to have had meaning, she said. He would have wanted for it to have brought about change for other children. And that's the story of Alex Radita. Like I said, you can go online. I mean, if you're not totally against seeing something sad to look at the video in which the parents thought was so good parenting of him and he looks absolutely pitiful they gave him a teddy bear and some farm animals and some farm but i'm animals. sure that his mind i mean he hadn't been schooled they are they weren't homeschooling them i mean but he hadn't been schooled in a while so his mindset and with that deprivation his mindset would have probably been like a child. It would have regressed, probably. Yeah, but he couldn't even hardly... But he couldn't do anything. He couldn't I mean, even hardly lift up the teddy bear. No. Mm-mm. He could barely tear the paper off. I mean, but... And he looks miserable. Dealing with all of that, you wouldn't actually think that he'd give a shit about a teddy bear. I mean... Well, I mean, you, you'd probably care about it but i mean he looks like well i mean he's too weak to care about anything that's what i'm there. saying as you can tell as in his how, face that he's just too weak yeah i mean his jawbone is like there is no nothing on it's just skin and bone and people who take that <laughs> you know say oh to a skinny no, guy skin and bone. No, you're not that's that's very much not true compared to I mean, long. I just, even to still me thinking of 37 pounds at 15 years old. I mean, that's nothing. Some babies come out weighing half that much almost. <laughs> 15 pounds? Half that much, yeah. Sometimes they, sometimes they do with this old anomaly or something. Good it's Lord. an alien. All right, y'all. Thank y'all for listening. Thank you. Please 
Take care of the children. Yes. And take care of each other. Be good parents. Or don't have children. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're going to do that to them, just don't have children. And don't blame religion for something. Exactly. I mean, first of all, if it's my religion not to take care of my child, maybe I would switch religions. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. But it wasn't anything to do with Because obviously it doesn't have your best, their or your best interest in mind if it's stating that, if it's religion. But I could sit here and argue and get madder and madder for hours. (laughs) But I'm going to quit. And we're going to sign off. Okay, I think that's all we got for you. We loved talking to you guys. We sure do. We love you all. And I have been Stan. And I've been Drew, and we're signing out to you. Bye. See ya.